Hi, I'm Matt Bird. And I'm Steve Bird. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So, welcome back, Steve. Oh, well, thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, hey, man, it's not its not like you're a guest on my podcast. This is our podcast together. With my Secrets of Story podcast, I pay all the hosting fees, I do all the editing, I paid for the theme music. As you may be able to tell, we have not paid for any theme music for this show. <laughs> I hope you guys don't mind our public domain trumpet fanfare. So you guys may be screaming at us saying, we told you everything you were doing wrong on that first episode. How come you haven't listened to us and you're doing all those same things wrong again on this episode? <laughs> and the reason is that we're recording both of these episodes before we've released the first one. Mm-hmm. We did get some news between recording that podcast and recording this one. And it turns out there is a podcast almost exactly like this one that we did not know about. If you run the Make Ours Marvel podcast, I have some advice for you. Work on your SEO because <laughs> I Googled to hell and back to make sure there was no podcast out there like this one and could not find one after several months of attempting to Google anything that might be like this out there. Then when we were discussing titles, I was like, well, what about Make Mine Marvel, which was one of Marvel's slogans back in the days. And so I Googled, is there a Make Mine Marvel podcast? And they're like, well, there's the Make Ours Marvel podcast. That's where two goofy guys go back and reread every Marvel comic and discuss basically a whole month's worth in every episode. And, oh, dear God, it's a lot like our podcast. (laughs) It has the same general vibe. It's got the exact same mission statement. And you listen to these things, and you're like, well, but it probably sucks. It's like, no, it doesn't suck. It's like, well, it's probably too long. It's like, no, they're actually really disciplined with time. Every episode is just about an hour. And then you're like, well, they probably gave up after a while. It's like, no, they have not. They're on episode 157, (laughs) and they are going strong every week. And so it's a bummer. I was hoping we would be the only podcast like this out there. But ultimately, you just have to love us because you love us. You can't love us because we're the only game in town because there's right. at least one other game in town but uh what, what is it we, you know we're number two so we try harder exactly <laughs> something to that effect so shall we get into talking about some comics i know that in our in our first episode we did a lot of background discussion about where lee and kirby were coming from in their careers where Marvel was in terms of its corporate history, talked about you know some terminology and stuff like that, so that we only ended up talking about one actual issue. I, and I figure we might diverge onto some of those things as we go through here. I know. But I think that we should probably just go ahead and get right into the next issue here and start right. talking about it. Last episode, we covered November 1961, Fantastic Four number one. Now we're going to cover what was basically the second month of Marvel Comics, January 1962, with Fantastic Four number two and Tales to Astonish number 27. In the next couple of months, I think we're going to multiply months just so that we can get through some more comics, and then we're going to settle into one comic per month. But so that you leaves know, us... One, one month per podcast. Yes, that, then we're going to do <laughs> one month of comics per podcast, not right. one comic per month. Of, we're not going to put out one one podcast a month with one comic per podcast. That'd be more like my other podcast, The Secrets of Story, where we are infamously slow. But, now, let, uh, let me clarify one thing, though, for folks here. When you are specifying the dates of these comics, those are the printed cover dates on the comics. In the comics industry, all the way up through the late 80s, they dated the comics about four or five months 
after the date of publication so that if you went and saw them on a newsstand, it would still look more current. And so when we say November or whatever it was, 1961, it actually came out in something like August. Yeah. Uh, and then these issues that we're doing in January of 62 were actually later in 1961. So that that's just an ambiguity that you get used to if you're going through the pre-modern comics yes. and I have to deal with that. So when we say dates, we are, take that yes. for granted. We are not going to do our research. We're not going to figure out when these things were actually released. We're going to get research. Bah. No, I'm, no I'm research. doing I'm doing an early Ben Grimm impression. Bah. <laughs> I was born to smash. <laughs> Indeed. So here's the first thing I have to say about this issue. Fantastic Four number two. This cover is a mess. Yeah. So let's describe this covers. So it says they had taken an oath to destroy the Fantastic Four. They were merciless. They were inhuman. They had powers far greater than Earthmen. They were the scrolls from outer space. And then so we've got three scrolls who are fighting the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four still have no costumes. Johnny is catching on fire. Sue is invisible and holding a vase. Of course, women in classic movies always, for some reason, would knock people out by hitting them on the heads with vases. Uh, <laughs> Reed Richards is coming in. The window is he... It's hard to tell because it, it's a, the reproduction quality is so poor on the cover. Is he smoking a pipe? Uh, I don't know if he is here. He is inside. No, he is not here. Yeah, so I'm I'm on – I know you've got a scan of the actual paper copy. I'm working on Marvel Unlimited here, so it's got uh, high-res stuff. And no, he is not smoking a pipe in this particular place, but he is later in the issue. And then he is reaching in with his stretchy hand to grab one of the bad guys. But yeah, it's a poorly composed cover. It's really strange. Now, the general composition of the action and the drawings of the characters are quite well done. And that's Kirby doing his thing and showing everybody in the team using their powers on the cover. That was one of his golden rules of doing comics, superhero comics. You're doing superhero yeah. comics, the characters have to be using their powers on the cover. And so he pulls that off. It's a nice little triangular kind of composition. But the whole top half of the book is just this sort of yellow void that just has some text here and there. It has some pictures on the wall that look like they're just sort of sketched in with a ballpoint. The floorboards down in the lower left-hand corner once again, it just looks like somebody went in there with like a pen later to try and extend some stuff. And then the floorboards that you can see through the invisible girl seem to extend past the wall. Something zigged when it should have zagged. I'm not sure. And on and obviously Stan Lee came to really depend on Jack Kirby as a cover artist above all else. In addition to being a master of interior comics art and what we call storytelling. And that's actually a term of art in the comics world about how a comic book artist tells the story through pictures. And yes, he is a master at that. But Stan Lee just basically was like, I want him drawing every cover I can get him to draw because his covers bring in the buyers. But this cover in particular clearly does not live up to that. hype. <laughs> Let's go ahead and get on into it here. If you are listening to this podcast and you only know Marvel Comics from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in that first issue, there was no element that had yet appeared in the Marvel Cinematic Universe when we're recording this because they have not made a Fantastic Four movie yet. But this is the first issue where there are elements you will be familiar with in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because in the Captain Marvel movie, she fought the Skrulls. So with the first little chapter here, and at this point, they've been making monster and romance and Western comics for the last decade, all of which are you know, these eight-page stories or six-page or whatever they 
are. And so they're still kind of in that mode here. This is our first chapter. Uh, and once again, Stanley and Jack Kirby just signed their names on the splash page. Uh, yeah. Stanley and Jay Kirby. It does not say who the writer is, who the artist is, or anything like that. It once again does not list the inker or any other personnel. Who is the inker? Apparently someone named Christopher Rule, if you are to take Marvel Unlimited at its word. And they usually, you know, if someone's working under a pseudonym, they will always just list them in the database credits as their actual name, not the pseudonym they were working under. So this was somebody named Christopher Rule, and I have never heard of that person until I, just until I was today years old. I think they had a different inker on almost every issue at first. People forget that one of these early issues was inked by Sinon, who would go on to ink <laughs> later issues, but we'll get to that when we get to it. Okay, yeah. so we begin with the thing. Yes. He's swimming up to an offshore oil derrick and he goes to it and he rips the thing apart. He's tearing it down and the thing falls. Sorry, the thing, <laughs> the oil uh, platform uh, collapses and everybody wildcats are jumping out into their escape boats. And then in the end, they're like, you know, we're lucky we got away. What happened? And it's like, look out in the distance, swimming away. It's the thing. He must have wrecked it. Now, we are going to learn in a moment here that the Fantastic Four is being framed. This does not seem like a very surefire way to have the thing no. get the blame. That, it you know, seems you, like sheer luck that a couple of people in a boat saw him at a distance swimming away, uh, whereas there are many ways more publicly he could have taken credit for this crime. So then we cut to Sue. She is shopping for an expensive diamond, a diamond worth $10 million. And then she seemingly disappears with the diamond, although – we will later find out she is actually a shape-changing squirrel who has shrunk, and you would think they would notice that the diamond just was still <laughs> on the ground walking away, because uh, presumably she did not shrink the diamond. But yes, she seemingly disappears with the diamond. We then cut to Johnny. Now, Johnny, now people say these comics are old and out of touch, but nothing could be more in touch than destroying <laughs> Civil War statues. And Johnny, well, granted, this is in New York City, so it's probably a Union Civil War statue. But anyway, well, no, we're still in Central City at this point. And then finally, we see Reed Richards reach his arm into a power plant and turn off the power. None of these are very destructive crimes. Nobody is killing anybody here. Nobody is really causing that much damage. Obviously, currently we have great debates as to how much blame people should get for destroying Civil War statues. Yes. Well, well, I mean, some of these are worse than others. I mean, tearing down that oil platform, that could very easily have killed people. I mean, it doesn't because their comics code authority doesn't allow for that sort of thing these days. But that should have killed people. The Mr. Fantastic thing, it's like, Oh, no, his arm came in and he switched off the power to the whole city. So I'm like, OK, there's one circuit that does the power for the whole city. And then, dude, you just walk over and switch it back on. Like I can see <laughs> yes. you you can just walk and one way or the other. I, I don't I don't want it. Here, here's the line. Here's the line that I walk with these things. I don't want to just be like snarky. Oh, you know, it's like this is a stupid thing. You could have just done that. You know, this is a dumb comic. You know, I don't want to do that. I, I, I want to walk that fine line of being able to laugh at the ridiculousness of some of these things, but still not come across as yeah. talking down about it. So I'm realizing I'm sort of going a little over that line. So I just want to put that out there. Yeah, I'm, I agree. I'm trying to I walk totally that agree. line. So then we find out that really these are not the Fantastic Four, that these are shape-changing scrolls from another planet. And by the way, it, they never really give the scroll planet a name. They just say, 
what quadrant of the galaxy it's in. I don't think they do that yet in this issue, but what quadrant of the galaxy are the scrolls from? Oh, yes, the fifth quadrant. The um, fifth of, quadrant of, of the galaxy. Of, of, I think, the Andromeda galaxy, if I'm not mistaken. Well, that'll uh, that, be in that, future issues, I think. But yes, I love that they're from the fifth quadrant. I think that is <laughs> Stanley's maybe having fun, maybe just being bombastic. And I think that's great. So then well, to some degree, that whole fifth quadrant thing is something that people still sort of get into fun arguments about. It's sort of almost like the Marvel equivalent of the doing the Kessel run in so many parsecs kind of thing. Yes, you know, it's like, exactly. So then we find out that these aliens are all sitting around chortling about what they've pulled off. They talk about how they were able to pull these things off using their shape changing powers and various other things. So then we see in the paper, the Fantastic Four have been declared public enemies. We then get, and I listened to that other podcast, and they were saying that they just happen to be in their, this hunting lodge. It's unclear from the way it's written uh, whether or not they just happen to be in a hunting lodge when they find out that they've been framed or if they've actually fled to this hunting lodge because they've been framed. But I, to my mind, I read it as they have actually fled to a hunting lodge to hide out once they realize they're being framed and they're now wanted fugitives. Johnny is cocking a shotgun. <laughs> no, I, I'm pretty sure that's a rifle, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's a I, rifle. I think you can tell I'm a blue stater here. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> right. I can't I, uh, tell the difference between a rifle and a shotgun. So I am, you can take away my man card. <laughs> anyway, so then we have the thing getting restless and wanting to just go out there and smash stuff and rips a taxidermied bear head and chucks it out a window, thereby prompting Reed to, I think for the second time, wrap thing up in his elastic arms to try and restrain him. Yes, as he will do issue after issue, just about every issue, he will wrap Ben up in his arms. And Ben is still freaking out, going almost acting almost like a monster himself. It says, we've got to wait to find out who's behind all this. Wait, that's all right for you, Torch. At least you're a human. How would you like to be me? I can't wait any longer. I'm going out to fight, to smash. Right. Now, one thing I'll point out here is when he's clearly in that speech balloons responding to the torch, and yet the person who just spoke with him is Reed. So I think that Stan hasn't yet quite gotten firm in his mind who all these characters are yet. Yes. Um, I had a note on this page that I wanted to point out. Reed starts waxing eloquent about why he doesn't blame Ben, because this is really all his fault, since we have a little bit of exposition about how they all got their powers. Uh, but here's the one thing I ha- one thing I had a note on. Panel four, where he begins his reverie, says it was my fault that our flight to Mars failed and we nearly lost our lives. That is that's another thing that's sort of been sort of gone back and forth on what they were supposedly trying to do. I think that there's some some other place where they said it's a starship. And some people are like, oh, he's going to a different star system. But here he says Mars and other places like we're just going out into space. Yeah, but I think it's pretty clear in that first issue that they just want to go be the first human beings to go into space. And they don't really have much of a destination. And then, of course, mere weeks after that issue came out, the Russians went into space. So now it seemed a little quaint that they had been going into space. And so they have we have our first Marvel retcon, and it's short for retroactive continuity. When something suddenly changes in the Marvel Universe and they act like it was always that way, now they are saying, oh, no, no, we were going to Mars. And indeed, the Fantastic Four, I don't know when they finally made it to Mars. I don't think they ever made it to Mars in Lee and Kirby stuff. So this is actually an ambitious goal. They do make it to the moon in issue 13, but this is Mars. This is a whole other thing. And indeed, human beings have still never made it to Mars. So this is still (laughs) an au science fiction goal to have 
Although we have made sure that Mars is the only planet inhabited entirely by robots. Yes. Well, so. that we know of. <laughs> right. Okay, so that's the end of part one. Is you know, with the Fantastic Four have been framed, they are hiding out, and they're trying to figure out what to do next. That we then begin part two, Prisoner of the Scrolls. And I love this first panel on this page. Um, the, the inking style looks a little bit like Jack Davis and the sort of overall look. Yeah. It looks like something out of a, out of an EC war comic. Yes. I love it. It it is gorgeous. Yeah. So we should explain that EC was a, (laughs) EC was a company that published very adult sophisticated horror comics in the 1950s and then brought down the weight of the government onto comics when they got a little too adult and too sophisticated and then people were like oh this isn't appropriate for kids and then the government got involved in banning comics and things went bad but well, yes. well let's be clear that it really wasn't necessarily the sophisticated parts that got them in trouble it was really the more gory sort of stuff particularly like severed heads uh that really got them down and in the end the government just started thinking about regulating them, uh, completely lost interest, but the industry was so spooked by it that they went ahead and put in a draconian a self-censoring organization called the Comics Code Authority that was still remained a thing well into the 80s or even the 90s. Oh, and was still very much affecting these very issues we're going to be reading. Oh, very much so, these, yes. That's going to be one of the themes of, as we move across the 60s, we're going to be seeing them chafe more and more under the Comics Code Authority and then eventually break it at the end of the 60s to a certain extent. Okay, so then troops arrive. The Fantastic Four does not fight them. They say, relax, soldier. We don't plan to fight the whole U.S. Army. And they agree to be sent to a prison. And then you've got a really wonderful sequence where they're all stuck in prison and they all figure out how to escape individually. I think one good thing about these early issues that would not be true as much is one of Stan's biggest flaws in these early issues is that in each of his team books, he had the men telling the women how to use their powers. And (laughs) it's especially a problem in the X-Men where Jean never once got to think of a single way to use her powers. And it was always Scott telling her like, Jean, you know, try to move that thing with your mind, pick it up here, move it here, do this now. And she would be like, oh, okay. And then gives her praise as though she's like a puppy that's just done a trick. (laughs) You know, and I feel like that also tends to happen somewhat in later issues of the Fantastic Four. Reed will be like, you know, Sue, turn invisible now. Sue, use your force field when she gets force field powers. But she is really on the ball in these early issues. And she, you know, figures out how to use her invisibility to escape from the cell. Johnny has to tear up the four of his cell in order to find some oxygen to turn his powers on. Uh, Ben just Mm. muscles his way out of it and just keeps pounding away at the door. Reed does one of the more horrific ever uses (laughs) of Reed's powers where he has to (laughs) shove his whole head through a tiny hole in the wall. And it's it's really it's really like a body horror moment. (laughs) You see that shot and it's like, yeah, you don't see the head squeeze through. But what you're looking at, you're just like, (laughs) you realize there was a moment where the eyeballs individually (laughs) squeezed through there. You can tell that. You can tell why they made that that horrible last yes. Fantastic Four movie they made that was trying to be a Cronenberg body horror type uh, Oh, God, type the Josh movie. Trank movie? Yeah. Yes, which yeah. I never saw. No, neither did I. Um, it, it has apparently shown up now on Disney+, and I, I'm probably going to hate watch it one day. I'll, <laughs> you know, we'll see. Kind of like I did with uh, the Inhumans miniseries. Yes, oh, you just boy. hate watch the Inhumans, so if you're willing yes. to hate watch the Inhumans, <laughs> you're officially willing to hate watch anything. <laughs> well, I mean, it is really worthy of hate. 
Don't let me tell you. Um, no, what, it's, a, is do, it, it's worthy of hate, but is it worthy of watch? That's the no, other half of hate watch. No, it's really not. It's really not. But one thing I want to point out about the Johnny bit here, and this might once again be something from the whole Marvel method with Jack telling a story, putting notes in there, and then Lee taking it. And this, in this case, it feels to me like there's something that Jack had an idea of how this is working and Stan didn't really quite understand what he was going for. And so he wrote the dialogue a little differently because he says here, they put me in a special asbestos room so my flame can't do damage. But they overlooked one thing. Any room, no matter how tightly sealed, must have at least one air vent. And I found it. So I think the thought there was, oh, if you can get to the air vent, that can then get your flame to something that can be melted. So yeah. that you can go ahead and get your way out. Two hades later, when he actually does get out, it says, ah, oh, that one air vent was all I needed to burst into flames. And, you know, it just seems like, wait, is this one way or the other? Yeah. It's, you know, it's I'm getting a little picky on that, but I just wanted to. to no, yeah, there, there. it definitely is a little unclear whether the problem is the lack of oxygen or the presence of the asbestos. I got to say, in these first couple of years of Marvel <laughs> Comics, Johnny is constantly going to be flummoxed by asbestos. And surely somebody later has wanted to tell a story where it's like, well, guess what, Johnny? Not only were you constantly being uh, smothered in asbestos in very ways that kept you from using your powers, you were also being given cancer. And now (laughs) you have asbestosis from all of the exposure to asbestos you had in those early issues of Fantastic Four. I think that was a missed opportunity in the Onion, Our Dumb Century book, (laughs) where they had the article about, you know, Peter Parker's promising science student and photographer dies of radioactive blood poisoning. And they they, they had a couple other mentions in there about like Bruce Banner dying in some kind of accident or something like that. But yeah, they really could have gone into and, you know, young Johnny Storm has just passed away from mesothelioma. Something like that. Uh, (laughs) And then he will eventually fight a villain called Asbestos Man. Oh, yes. So, uh. More of a threat than you realize, Johnny. Watch out. So I'm yeah. on page 11 right now. Yeah. A couple of things. One, here we do have Reed smoking his pipe. I know that in our previous podcast, you had referred to that to Reed being in the Baxter building. And I have long been of the impression that, okay, the whole Central City thing was just a conceit, you know, just like DC has everybody in made up cities. And he was just doing the same usual convention here until after a while, it's like, it's clearly New York. We'll just start calling it New York. And I have generally been like, ah, Central City is not really a real thing. It's just, it's always New York. But I noticed that we didn't really see the Baxter building. We saw him in a window, but nothing that looked like the Baxter building. And here at the top of page 11, the uh, very first introductory caption, not long afterwards, at one of the Fantastic Four's many secret apartment hideouts. You know, and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. So then I'm kind of starting to buy into the whole Central City was a different thing explanation. And much yeah. later, they did go, oh, yeah, we started off in Central City, and they go back to Central City, which has been caught in a time bubble. And so then they did eventually go, no, 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 they really were in a place called Central City for those first three issues. Which is going to be problematic when we get to the Ant-Man issue where he is also in Central City. So, you know, unless <laughs> unless he just picked up and moved at the same time that the Fantastic Four did, which presumably he did. Um, yes, but that's, that, that's to come. We, we will deal with that later. Now, I want wanted to point that out, though, about the many secret apartment hideouts before the Baxter building is introduced here. So then they get free and then they're like, "Okay, so how do we figure out how to catch these scrolls who have been impersonating us? And they come up with what is in some ways a really brilliant plan, but one that is also very dependent on luck. They read (laughs) the newspaper and they see that 
there is a new rocket that is going to be tested. And they go like, well, the scrolls are probably intending to wreck this new rocket that's going to be tested and probably going to blame us. And then they're like, so one of us should go wreck the rocket and get in good with the scrolls, claiming that we are the impersonator of ourselves. And there's a fight between, is it going to be Johnny or is it going to be Ben? Is it going to be the human torture? Is it going to be the thing? And then the human torch wins the argument and then he wrecks the rocket himself. And then he is very lucky in that it turns out that the scrolls have not actually sent anyone to destroy it for him to run into, but they have decided to come out and watch it because the Reed and Sue scrolls drive up and they're like, oh, that's someone who looks like Johnny Storm who has just wrecked this thing. This is clearly our friend. This is clearly our scroll. And then let's bring him home to our headquarters. So it seems like there was a fair amount of luck involved in getting that to actually work in terms of having them be there and yet not actually being part of a competing operation. Kind of like saying, oh, there's no such place as Monster Isle. And it's like, well, you know, let's fly there and find out. Exactly. Um, he's picked up by the scrolls. Picked up by the scrolls, taken back to their apartment. They do instantly realize, to to their credit, as soon as they get him back, you fools, why did you bring him here? He's the real torch. And they're like, we thought, and then Johnny says, you thought what I wanted you to think. So then Johnny reaches out the window and shoots his Fantastic Four flare, and now he just has to fight them until the Fantastic Four show up to help him. And he does. So at first he's just fighting three of them, and this is key, but then the one who is supposed to be Johnny comes in and says, it's the fourth alien, the one who impersonated me. And then at this point, they're both flying around as human torch. They're finding each other. But then the real thing comes in. The real Mr. Fantastic comes in. The real Sue comes in. They're all fighting very well. They, once again, <laughs> Ben starts to go crazy, trying to beat them up. And Reed, for the second time this issue, has to wrap his arms around him and restrain him. So then this is my favorite thing about Stanley. And again, this is the sort of thing where if you think that these comics were really entirely plotted by Jack Kirby and Stanley only had any exposure to them when he was doing the scripting, then you would say this isn't Lee. But to me, I always tend to go by textual arguments on these things. You got to follow the clues in the text. And I think that one thing that Lee's comics, no matter who was illustrating them, had in common was very clever things like this, where Reed says, there's only one thing to do. They masqueraded as us, now we must pose as them. I think one of the big things that separates Stanley Comics from the DC Comics that were being published at the time is very clever work on the part of the heroes. They are leveraging what little power they have. They're fighting people who are more powerful than them, as opposed to Superman, who tend to be more powerful than his villains. And they are leveraging cleverness to make up for their lack of power, which is a big recurring theme in Marvel Comics, no matter who was illustrating them, which makes me think it was coming from Lee. And if anything else, Lee was, at a minimum, essentially the creative director for the whole thing. Even if you did want to absolutely minimize what he was doing in terms of actually writing the stories, he's still the one giving the assignments. He's still the one who is hiring these people to do the work and writing the dialogue afterwards and making sure it's all cohesive one way or the other fits in together in in a cohesive package. That's giving a little bit more credit to the whole Stanley didn't really write it argument than I'm willing to give it. But even if you did, he's still, if nothing else, the creative director for all of this that would keep everything sort of in a certain direction. Yes. And I would say more than that. As as um, I said, as I said, that's even if I were to grant that argument, this would still be true. But yes. Yeah. So then they 
Finally, get the scrolls to talk. The scrolls say, "We scrolls have an invasion fleet waiting above your atmosphere, but before we attack Earth, our leaders want to be sure the Fantastic Four would be unable to fight us." So, <laughs> I'd say one thing about this issue. What issue with this issue is the exact same issue that I have with the Avengers movie, the first Avengers movie, is that in the first Avengers movie, they literally go, "Let's get together and form a team called the Avengers." We just had this idea. Wait just a second. What's that sound? Oh, it's an alarm. Loki is attacking. And Loki has a plan to defeat the Avengers. And he is he has figured out our weakness, and that's that he can turn us against each other. And I'm like, wait just a second. You just formed the Avengers literally <laughs> one minute before this. How on earth did Loki already come up with a plan to defeat the Avengers by turning them against each other when even you did not know the Avengers were ever going to exist? How did he know? And it struck me as a very strange plot concept in that movie that he has come up with this clever plan to defeat the Avengers who did not exist. And here, the Fantastic Four, it's unclear how long the Fantastic Four have been around, but the whole idea of this issue is that the Skrulls have been studying the Fantastic Four for seemingly months or years and have said, oh, the number one thing we need to do to conquer the Earth is to defeat the Fantastic Four, so let's concoct a very elaborate plan to frame the Fantastic Four. And it's like, didn't the Fantastic Four just come into existence like yesterday? (laughs) (laughs) You know, to to veer off on the MCU again for a moment, now that they're basically turning Loki into Doctor Who, as it looks like, maybe that explains how he knew what was going on in other points in time. Exactly. As we're recording recording this, the Loki TV show is about to premiere. So uh, we have not actually seen any episodes of the Loki TV show yet. You know, so the two of us were born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and we grew up there dreaming about making our own comics, dreaming about moving to New York City. At first, I at least dreamed about being a superhero and moving to New York City. And then, you know, you get a little older and you stop dreaming about being a superhero and you start dreaming about making superhero comics and then going to New York City. And you know, my mom would tell me, like, well, it's very expensive to live in New York City. Are you sure you're going to be able to afford to live there, especially if, you know, you're making comic books? And I would go, well, you know, I always read all these comic books that are set in New York City and all the buildings have water towers on top of them. Couldn't you just live in one of the water towers? <laughs> and I decided I'm going to go to New York City and I am going to convert one of those water towers on top of the buildings into an apartment. And that way I'll be able to afford to live in New York City on a comic book writer's salary. <laughs> and uh, But so then here it turns out that the scroll ship is disguised as a water tower, which is a very cool image. They get into a, a ship disguised as a water tower and they go up and – When you read like American literature from the last 40 years or so, you're like, oh, you know, literature has gotten so self-reflective and has gotten so postmodern. But of course, if you look at the most postmodern novels, probably the most postmodern novel ever written is Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern, which was like the second novel ever published. And you find that things tend to get very postmodern once things have been around for a while. And then things also get really postmodern right away. As soon as something starts to exist, the second thing that pops into people's heads is how can we start telling stories about these stories and start winking and self-referencing ourselves in a very clever and bizarre way? And then we get an absolutely wonderful thing. You had said before that Marvel's second issues tend not to be their best issues, but you had said this was an exception. This is an exception. This is a fantastic story. And the place where this story really goes into the stratosphere is here, and it is how they (laughs) defeat the Skrulls. They have brought, apparently the scrolls don't know the difference between drawings and photographs. And (laughs) it turns out that Reed has cut up Johnny's monster comics and shows him pictures of these monsters. And he says, 
those are some of Earth's most powerful warriors. And then he thinks to himself, I pray he doesn't suspect they're actually clipped from strange tales and journey into mystery, which were two (laughs) of Marvel's monster comics at the time. So he has cut up Chinese monster comics and is showing him pictures of these monster comics and the scrolls totally fooled. They're like incredible, unbelievable. We've got to leave this galaxy at once before those terrifying creatures discover us. If you hadn't warned me in time, we would surely all have been slain. And then they actually give them a medal and they say, and the Fantastic Four says, we must stay behind and remove all evidence of our presence on Earth. We shall sacrifice ourselves so that you will be safe. And they give them a medal and send them back to Earth. Well, uh, and and this is, I, I think, at this point, they are they are claiming to be the invasion force, right? The disguise scrolls. Yes, yes, yes. they are so pretending to be the scrolls. They're saying, "Oh, you sent us down to Earth, disguised the Fantastic Four, and we still are wearing our disguises, and we're going to go back and show you evidence of what we've discovered on Earth." Right. And then so now they're saying we will stay behind and essentially protect you from being discovered so that these giant ants and you know, Goom and Gort and whoever else and, <laughs> you know, all the monster comic stuff uh, doesn't come and, and get you at night. So then they're like, oh, wow, you're such heroic scrolls here. Here's a medal. And then they are able to head back to Earth. So then they go back to Earth. They finally reveal to the government what's going on. The thing becomes Ben Grimm again, briefly, which will be a recurring theme. But then he transforms back, much to his chagrin. They then convince the police finally what was actually going on. They go back to the apartment where the scrolls were. The scrolls turn into monsters and attack them, but they defeat the scrolls. However, just three of them. And at this point... Both Stan and Jack have seemingly forgotten that there were four scrolls. Just they're attacked by three, and then they're like, oh, what can we do with these three? They're talking to the three. They then come up with the bizarre plan to hypnotize the three scrolls into thinking they are cows and releasing them on a field somewhere. Now, later storytellers would have a field day with this. <laughs> with all elements of this. <laughs> <laughs> with all elements of this. It would turn out, eventually, the scrolls in the field would become unhypnotized. But then it would turn out that while they had been giving milk, their scroll milk had been causing all kinds of trouble. And then later they said, oh, no, no. And there was some of the, some. I guess they impregnated some, I guess, no. But that couldn't have been true. They must have gotten impregnated by some bulls and given birth some, because then scroll meat becomes a big issue later on. It all keeps happening. The fourth missing scroll also ends up being a storyline at some point, right? Yes. Eventually, some other writer is like, hey, uh, everybody seems to have forgotten there were four scrolls. We can get a story out of that, which they certainly did. Also, another little silly art thing that it's silly and I love it is at the very top of page 23, top right corner where Reed is stretching out the window to catch one of the scrolls that's turned into some vulture-looking thing. And... Clearly, Reed is hanging onto the windowsill with his shod feet. His feet are in shoes, and clearly the somehow the shoes or the feet must be grabbing onto the windowsill somehow to hold them up. And it, that's just one of those visually silly and I utterly love it kind of moments. Right. So yes, there they go ahead and put them into the field, and there we go. Then we have our first pinups. Yes. Presenting the first of a series, the Fantastic Four pinup page featuring this issue, The Thing. And it's got a little inset of Ben Grimm and, you know, how ruggedly handsome he used to look. The strongest man-like creature on the face of the earth. 
at some point here, we should explain that you are reading the Marvel Unlimited comics. I am reading the actual comics, which is to say I am reading scans of the actual comics. And I got to say, I kind of like having scans of the original comics because I, for instance, know that that pinup did not come at the end of that issue. It came in the middle of that issue. And I get to see all the ads and I get to see all the original coloring. When you share old Marvel panels on Facebook and some idiot has added gradient coloring to them, then nothing pains me more. And I love seeing the original coloring. I love seeing the original ads. I love seeing the original everything. So I'm reading scans of the original comics and you're reading the Marvel yes. Unlimited. Ads. And I, I first started reading scans, but then after all, I'm like, I'm doing this for a while. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and get a Marvel Unlimited. I should go ahead and get a Marvel Unlimited subscription just so that I am paying for it, even if I'm not actually using it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it might not be a bad idea. Anyway, so we, we are at the end of Fantastic Four number two. So yeah, as I said earlier, in my personal opinion, uh, I think this is an outlier in being a good second issue for a Marvel comic. As I said, usually I have found that the second issues of most Marvel comics are pretty bad, but they get better. Essentially, you know, we're going for quality through quantity. I, I'm assuming you've heard of that study where they take some people in a pottery class. Pottery class. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so you clearly, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. And they tell half the class, make a perfect pot. Yeah, spend all your time making one perfect pot and tell the other half the class, don't try to make quality pots, just make as many pots as you can. And then later they judge the quality and they find that the people who made as many pots as they can, ultimately their best pot was higher quality than the people who spent all their time making a perfect pot. Yes, and quality through quantity is definitely a big element in these. But I think this is a fantastic issue. I think that this is the proof of concept. This is the proof of the pudding. This is the issue where they proved that the Marvel Universe could actually be an ongoing thing. And these characters could sustain, if they can sustain two issues, then they can sustain a thousand issues, which they have now. And they're having fun. This is just a tremendously fun comic and a very postmodern comic, a very smart comic, a very clever comic, a comic that is just taking the piss out of itself, out of the entire comics medium, and is just a labor of love by both Stan and Jack. And well, ink. I agree. Um, even though the inker is someone I have never heard of before, apparently never, never to work in this business again. I guess. Again, Stan had fired everybody. So Stan, you know, the Marvel Comics had collapsed, and they used to have an actual bullpen of people who were all there working at Marvel Comics doing art. And at this point, Stan was the only employee, and everything was piecework that was being farmed out. So he was taking what he could get. And a lot of the people who Stan wanted to work with, he couldn't convince to come back to Marvel Comics because Marvel had fired everybody five years before. And he was taking what he could get. Let's go ahead and talk about Tales to Astonish number 27, particularly the story in it, The Man in the Ant Hill. So this was the same month as Fantastic Four number two. And I will say that Fantastic Four number two, one thing I didn't mention a moment ago is that it really does still feel a lot like a monster comic book. There's more, either a monster comic book or a science fiction comic book, or, you know, some of the stuff that Marvel has been doing. Yes, it's starting to grow into its own thing, but it still feels kind of rooted in that suspense, horror, monster, sci-fi, aliens invading kind of zone that Marvel had been in. And now we're going to look at a story that, as far as I know was originally meant to just be one of those monster stories, but was then retconned several months later into being the origin for Marvel's first superhero after the Fantastic Four. 
Yes. So this is not intended to be a superhero comic. This is a comic that was retroactively turned into a superhero comic once they decided to bring the scientists back. So this is Tales to Astonish number 27. Let me tell you while I still can how it happened, for I was the man in the anthill. And you have a man being dragged down into an anthill. He is clearly ant-sized. And he's saying, save me. Somebody save me. Don't let them drag me there. Not gasp into the anthill. Does not look like Hank Pym on the cover, but we will not, not color that way, but we'll find out on the inside that this is the story of Hank Pym. Now, you may know this. This is our first hero who we have seen in the MCU, although they didn't let him star in his own films in the MCU. Michael Douglas played Hank Pym, who was more of a mentor to the Ant-Man who was in the movies. They decided, I think, because of the baggage the Hank Pym character had accrued over the years, not to start by making a Hank Pym Ant-Man movie. So I knew that a lot of old-time Marvel fans that I interact with in Facebook groups thought that he got short shrift by being in the role he was. Now, as you were saying, the character has accrued a lot of baggage over the years. Actually, the biggest baggage he picked up was right around the time we started collecting. So like one of our first big storylines was one where he we won't go into that right now but well, we can go ahead and say he had his wife and yeah. gave her a black eye and the writing apparently said it wasn't supposed to be intentional and then the artist made it look more intentional than it was Both the artist and the writer blamed each other when this thing blew up forever tarnished Hank Pym as a character. He never recovered, which is why they later decided to make an Ant-Man movie, but with a subsequent Ant-Man as the hero. So this is the issue where they introduce Hank Pym, not as a superhero, very much not as a superhero. This story is a riff on the movie The Incredible Shrinking Man, which is based on a Richard Matheson novel, which was made into a fantastic film. And this is very similar, where you have someone who he has invented a shrinking potion, they will go back and forth quite a bit in early Ant-Man comics as to whether or not it is a potion or a gas or a pill or just an internal molecular property. But in this case, it is very much a wet potion. He actually has to drip on something and to make it small and to make it big. Of course, in the tradition of all great mad science stories, <laughs> first, they always say this in shrinking and growing stories. They're like, I can take food and turn it huge and feed the world. And then they're like, but... I should test it on myself. That's, they always get to the point where they're like, I should test it on myself. So he pours some shrinking potion on his wrist, says, it's shrinking me so fast. I can see myself change. I'm becoming smaller and smaller. It, it's working faster than I expected, too fast. He ends up tiny and very quickly finds himself getting sucked into an anthill and getting buried in honey, which the ants have stored for food. Do, do ants have honey? <laughs> I'm not sure ants actually have honey. Did you know that there was another story in this same series called The Man in the Beehive? No. Yes. I did not realize that. But this is the one that they chose to uh, turn into a superhero eventually. He gets to do some fun, exciting work. He makes sort of a lasso and has to haul himself up a hill. Of course, another big part of any 50s, 60s adventure story, he is attacked by an ant, says, ah, oh, strong, too strong for me, but I have one advantage, a human brain, which has learned the art of judo. Okay, and so, th so this is one thing. This is one of my notes that I had about that. Fast forward four or five years from now, there's an issue of Avengers where Hank Pym says something about using judo on something. And I was like, judo, come on. He's already one of the foremost life sciences and cybernetics and all this other sort of stuff, scientists in the world. And he had time to learn judo, really? And then I'm like, oh, no, they established that he knew judo right from the very first story. Well, this one, <laughs> judo was a huge thing in right. 
in American stories, I think the idea was there was sort of a fad, I think, starting with the Korean War. I associate mm-hmm. I associate judo stories with the Korean War, that after America basically lost the Korean War, there was a thought of like, how were these backwards people able to outsmart us? And of course, it was already starting to happen at this point again with Vietnam. How are these primitive Asian people able to outsmart our, our vastly powerful country? And then it all got mixed up in their minds, I think, with this idea of judo, this idea that, <laughs> oh, these smaller Asian people can use our own vastly superior American strength against us and flip us over. And then in the Avengers British TV show, it became all about using judo flips to flip your enemy over on top of you. You saw it in a lot of spy stuff. You see it in a lot of stuff. Ed wasn't a Manchurian candidate, the first judo fight in an American movie. Yes, yes. And that was very much tied into the Korean War as well. Right around the same period of time, too. Yes. I'd totally forgotten about the judo fight in Manchurian Candidate. Yes. And I think in that fight, Frank Sinatra, it turns out, in fighting in Korea, has learned judo. Yes. And is yeah, able think, to hold his, own, hold his own in a judo fight. Yeah. And so then eventually, Hank befriends one of the ants, and that ant agrees to save him from the other ants. He, not for the last time, rides the ant as the ant climbs up the wall, he's able to climb into his vial of tipped over serum, splashes around in it, says, I'm growing, I'm getting bigger and bigger, I'm normal again, I'm a man again. Just like at the end of the first Fantastic Four issue, they seem to be making some stabs and saying, and that was the last adventure they ever had. <laughs> and this, they are very clear on this one, this is the last adventure Hank will ever have. He says, now the first thing to do is destroy these growth potions. They're far too dangerous to ever be used again. And at the next monthly meeting of the Science Fellowship, So your experiments failed? Yes, you were right. They were just a foolish waste of time. From now on, I'll stick to practical projects. But then it cuts to him looking down at some anthills and says, and so our tale has ended, except for one brief note. Never again did Henry Pym knowingly step on an anthill. Well, I would hope most adults are not knowingly stepping on any anthills, but it says, <laughs> says, for he knew that somewhere beneath him, unknown and unrecognized, was one little insect, one small ant, to whom he owed his very life. The end. So seems pretty definitively like this was the last anybody was ever going to hear of Hank Pym. Yes. So that's just one eight-page story that's in here. We're not really going to go into the other ones that are here, but I do want to acknowledge a couple of things. One is the text story that they have that's inserted in the middle of here. In comics for many, many years, they had to have, I think it was two full pages of text without pictures in order yes. to get like the bulk mail rate or something like that. Yes. Magazines paid a lower postage rate than you didn't qualify as magazine unless you had at least two pages of text. So comics at this point, and this would very quickly end, still had two page text stories. They had to be like fictional text stories. And that was how Stan got his start. Stan got his start back in the 40s writing the text stories before he got a chance to actually write comics. And apparently he hated it. He was working on Captain America uh, when he was a teenager. And, you know, Jack Kirby was a little bit older than him, was doing Captain America with his previous partner, Joe Simon. And Stan's job as the nephew of the publisher who was in here getting an nepotism job, basically, at that point, go write one of these pieces that we know no kid's ever going to read, but we have to have them for postal reasons. And that's when Stan learned to hate Bucky, is my understanding. (laughs) So apparently one of the first stories he wrote what is it, the text pieces for uh, the Captain America book. And in that text piece, he had Cap fighting 
the bad guys by literally picking Bucky up by the feet and swinging him around like a club. (laughs) And this goes into later the whole thing about Bucky actually being dead and not being comic book dead. For a long time, before the Winter Soldier, which completely finally upended this, for a long time there was a saying in comics, so wait, is this character dead or are they Bucky dead? <laughs> right? right. Bucky dead meant they ain't never coming back. But of course, then eventually even Bucky came back. I've heard them say that the one Marvel character who will absolutely never come back is Uncle Ben. Peter Parker's yeah. Uncle Ben, who he uh, mercifully has remained dead. So that was it. I want to say that the Marvel Universe has expanded beyond Fantastic Four, but it really hasn't yet. Because there, I think, was no thought at all about turning this into a continuing superhero. So really, the actual Marvel Universe as far as anybody knew at the time, was still just the Fantastic Four as we end this episode. And they told another story about a guy who can shrink named Hank Pym that would later be retconned into being the first issue of the larger superhero universe. But what do we think about this actual issue? What do we think about this Ant-Man story? I think it's charming. It's neat. I like it. One of the things I like about it is it sort of puts some of, I want to say Atlas Comics, because as I think I mentioned in the previous one, Marvel was the third name the company had. It was originally called Timely, and then it was called Atlas, and it had only recently changed to being called Marvel Comics. I don't know how long it had been at this point, but it was relatively new. Having this kind of Atlas Comics story as one of the initial roots out of which the rest of the Marvel comics grew is kind of a neat little bit of continuity to these lean days that they had when they were coming out of nearly going under and, as you say, firing everybody and having to cut down six or eight books a month and, you know, getting distributed through their largest rival and all this humiliation they had been through. But they did some neat stuff within those constraints. And I like the fact that this story that is really much a part of that inextricably is knitted into the beginnings of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, it gives us a glimpse into the Marvel horror comics that even when you're just reading the Marvel superhero comics, you do get a brief glimpse into it. And we should say that this issue is inked by Dick Ayers, who is the first inker we're going to see who would go on to be one of the major inkers and pencilers of the entire Marvel 60s era. He is mm-hmm. going to ink a tremendous amount of Kirby comics, and he does a beautiful job inking this. Yeah, he absolutely does. And he also would end up going on to be associated most with Sergeant Fury and his Helen Commandos, which he takes over after Jack Kirby leaves that book in a little while. But that's something that we get to. He does a great job with that World War II book when we get to that. He does. Okay, so we covered two comics this month. We're going to cover even more comics in later months. Any final thoughts, Steve? Other than just, hey, we now have two different sets of characters that are going to be coming together into this large mosaic later. And, you know, as improbable as it seems at this point, but we've got those ingredients there. So, uh, no, I'm excited to keep going. I am too. All right. This has been fantastic. Well, everybody, thanks for listening to our second episode. We will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.